Passover was the holiest days. And the temple in Jerusalem was the holiest of spots. And according to the first three Gospels, just before he was arrested, and according to the Gospel of John, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus did something that people have used many, many times to justify their anger. He chased the money changers or the vendors out of the temple. Now, in none of the Gospels does it say that he hurt anyone. Nowhere is it recorded that he was angry. Of course, you can read anger into the scene if you wish. In one of the Gospels, the money changers return and he does not repeat the act. But how many times have you and I heard that one scene cited as a justification for anger? Despite the fact that in the Sermon on the Mount, he says very plainly, our sacred scripture has said, thou shalt not kill. I say to you, thou shalt not get angry. So not only did he say it specifically, but he said it in many different metaphors. Turning the other cheek. Forgiving, 70 times 7. Agreeing with the person who's suing you even before you get to court. And on and on. I know you know all of them. So, why did Jesus do this? Probably we would have to be in those times and understand the sanctity of the day and of the place. Unquestionably, it seemed to have at least something to do with money. That the temple had been turned to profit. And so often our churches today seem to be asking for money rather than giving money. Nowhere that I know of did Jesus suggest to anyone that they even beg. He sent them out and he said, you will be provided for. And when the multitude was gathered around him and there was a need, he supplied the need. He didn't ask them to supply it. So this seems to me to be one of his lessons. That to ask something of our brother 
is to fail to see him as our brother. We cannot want something from another person and still see them as a friend. Now they're an inconvenience. Now they're simply uh, a source rather than the source. The course's position on money and the course, as many of you know, is written in the first person. Clearly the standpoint is Jesus. He refers to his life many times. He refers to things that he said. The course's position on money is God didn't create it, therefore it doesn't exist. <laughs> the Course says money is not evil, it is nothing. <coughs> How often do we get angry over money? And we leave a smaller tip at the restaurant because we've gotten angry. Or we're not going to give our child any more money. Our child has to learn to stand on his own two feet. I want to talk to you just a little bit about Jerry Jampolsky's example. As many of you know, I travel a great deal with Jerry. We give seminars on A Course in Miracles. Until just recently, we were giving an average of at least one a week someplace in the country. I want to tell you his story concerning money. Because everything he did came from guidance. He was a practicing psychiatrist in Tiburon, had a very successful practice, was making a lot of money. He had something called the Children's Center. Actually, he had something called the Children's Annex that was an offshoot of the Children's Center. And Judy Scutch flew down and brought him a set of A Course in Miracles uh, in manuscript form before it had been uh, published. Started reading it. Judy, of course, was a Jew. Jerry was a Jew. Helen herself, who channeled the material, was a Jew. So he looked at uh, the manuscript and uh, his reaction was, this is pornography. It's all Christian terminology. talked about God. He was a good Freudian psychiatrist. It's bad enough that it talked about God. But as he read it, he heard for the first time an inner voice that said, Physician, heal thyself. This is your way home. And he started crying. So he kept reading the books. And as he did so, he saw that 
they instructed him to make no decisions by himself, not one, that he was to turn to God for guidance in all things. But one of the first things that the guidance told him to do was to start the Center for Attitudinal Healing. So his guidance was he was to start a center. He was not to charge the children at the center. As a matter of fact, uh, he was to give them all a, a free uh, meal. Along with that, he was told that as each patient, each, each new patient came to him, he was told not to charge the new patient. So within about a year and a half, he was not charging any of his patients. And he was out of his own pocket supporting the Center for Attitudinal Healing. And two years after this had begun, his accountant called him on the phone and said, guess what? We don't have any more money. But right at that time, someone stepped in, benefactor, and said, could you use some help by any chance? And so that paid the bills for a while. Then some individual contributions started coming in. He began getting speaking invitations. Some of those uh, paid a fee. Many he accepted free. Also during this time, every time his insurance policies would come up, he of course would ask, was he to renew this policy and that policy? And so very shortly he found that he had no insurance, no malpractice insurance, no insurance on his, his house, He was completely defenseless. Now, another thing that A Course in Miracles states very clearly is that if money is required for us to fulfill the plan that God has for us, then it will be provided. If we need more money, it will be provided. That whatever we need to do the work that we're here to do it will be provided. It makes it very clear that God is our source even if we don't know it. Because A Course in Miracles says it's not necessary for you to believe in God in order to be a teacher of God. It says this course <coughs> comes from Jesus but it is not necessary for you to believe that. Although he says I can be of great comfort and help to you if you do believe it. But it's not necessary. <coughs> so one of the lessons that seems to be very clear that Jesus gave us in the Gospels, the Course in Miracles gives us, is that we don't have to bother about the future. We don't have to bother about providing for ourselves. And the second lesson, it seems to me, that Jesus may have been trying to teach during the episode with the money changers 
is the lesson of forgiveness. Now, in A Course in Miracles, Jesus corrects several things that are stated in the Bible. He, he makes it clear that he is not attempting to correct everything. And he also says that, that any idea can be helpfully reinterpreted to mean heaven is here and heaven is now. And this has helped me a great deal because so often I find someone saying something that I don't think I'm agreeing with. And when I remember that, I can reinterpret it to mean heaven is here and heaven is now. He says that after the crucifixion, because of the apostles' feeling of guilt concerning what appeared to be their betrayal, what they thought of as their betrayal of him, that it was very difficult for them to think about the crucifixion without some feeling of guilt and therefore anger. Because guilt and anger are inseparable. And he says this is why there were some things attributed to him that he simply did not say. One of those is, I came not to bring peace but a sword. Now there's a very famous Catholic Bible commentary that for years has been saying that this, is pro this was probably added by the early church. This was probably not even a part of the original manuscript. So unlike everything else uh, that Jesus said, is it? Another thing, he says, is that he did not condemn Judas. Did not condemn Judas to hell. The, uh, the gospel doesn't say sure that he condemned him to hell but the implication is he said he simply didn't do that and he didn't even say why betrayest thou me with a kiss he said why would I say why betrayest thou me when the whole point of the crucifixion was to illustrate that we cannot be betrayed we cannot be abandoned he said I simply attempted to illustrate this point in the most dramatic way that I possibly could. He said, my, bo my body was torn and ripped and so forth. He goes into detail and he says that he simply showed that this had no effect. It doesn't matter. And he says, because I went through that extreme of an example, it is not necessary that anyone else do that. That, that there are far less tempting forms of seeming betrayal for us to deal with. And those are sufficient. So we can just take the little betrayals. They're, they're actually, if we look for them, there are actually hundreds of them that will occur in a week maybe even hundreds within a single day, in which we feel slightly betrayed. How less tempting are those betrayals 
than having everyone, all of your friends, desert you. Now, the first three Gospels put the episode with the money changers just before he's arrested. And after he was arrested, he did not defend himself in any way. He allowed himself to be arrested. He did not defend himself before the court, before Pilate, or in any other way. Now, of what practical importance is this to me and to you? Defenselessness and what it addresses is possibly the central theme of A Course in Miracles. Defenselessness and forgiveness being synonymous. If you wish to understand A Course in Miracles, I don't think it's possible unless you understand one central concept. And that is, we all feel guilty, just as the apostles did. As a matter of fact, we haven't even begun to look at this guilt. Now, the guilt is not based on fact, but it is believed to be present. We think we are deeply, irrevocably guilty. We get little hints of this. But whenever you take a an honest look at it, I promise you it will appall you. Talk about skeletons in a closet. This is pure carnage when you look at your own guilt. A Course in Miracles says that the cornerstone of this guilt is the guilt that we feel thinking that we have turned against God. We've turned against our source. We've turned against life itself. We've turned against the giver of all good. We really believe that. And every time we have a certain kind of thought or we behave in a certain way during the day, this reminds us once again of our basic betrayal, our original sin, we think. Feeling this guilt, we must get angry, says our ego, in order to not feel it. Now, so this is the central concept. Our anger projects our guilt onto others. This is the freeing device. This is the little gift that the ego hands us time and time during the day. See someone else as guilty and you won't feel as guilty in comparison. So the ego's sense of innocence is simply that someone else has sinned in a way that's far greater than our sin. And indeed, that appears to be true because of this thing that is called projection. 
a Freudian term. And remember that A Course in Miracles occurred at Columbia University. It came to a professor of psychology at, at Columbia University. And the only material that was deleted from a course occurred at the beginning of a text, and part of it concerned Freud, because Helen Schuchman and Bill Thetford were very concerned about Freud, and how did this relate to Freud? Because one of the things that was obvious was that the word ego was not being used the same way. And so they were told certain things about Freud. And one of the things that they were told was that Freud had the ego dead right. He described it exactly the way it functions. The only thing that Freud didn't see is that the ego is a defense against ourself. So let me give you an unfreudian explanation of the ego. This is just something that I find helpful. Many of us, when we were kids, had imaginary playmates. Uh, my little boy, Gail's, uh, and my little boy has uh, an imaginary ghost that comes into his room now. Tells us about the episodes of this. I remember the first imaginary thing that my my older son, I have a son who's uh, 22, the uh, he had imaginary monsters. And I remember the time that I tried to talk him out of uh, believing in the monsters. I went in to set him down. I was very reasonable about the monsters. <coughs> I got all through this beautiful explanation as to why there were no monsters. He said, Daddy, these are just baby monsters. <laughs> no. We may not remember this kind of projection that we did as a child. Probably all of us did it. Maybe everyone had an imaginary playmate. Now, what we did as a child is we set up the imaginary playmate to function as if it were a real playmate. So it did everything that a real playmate would do. So we would decide what our imaginary playmate would say and then quickly forget our decisions. Very important that we forget our part in this and everything that we do within this world so that we will appear to be a victim. So we, we tell the imaginary playmate what to say. The imaginary playmate says it, and this comes as a surprise. We didn't know it was going to say that. We're shocked it said that, and so forth. And you can actually hear children having heated arguments with their imaginary playmates. This is shocking what my playmate is telling me. Although I'm telling you to say that. <coughs> An ego is simply an imaginary identity. So this is the form, according to A Course in Miracles, that the separation, the original separation, took. We chose to forget our actual identity and have instead an ego, an imaginary identity. So this imaginary identity functions just like a real identity. It has imaginary emotions and imaginary thoughts, and it lives an imaginary life, and 
this is our ego. So we indeed have what could be called, of course in miracles does, does not use this term, but we, we have what could be called an ego mind. And one of the things that the Course in Miracles trains anyone who studies it to do is distinguish between the ego mind and our actual mind. And it's quite interesting as this, as this uh, difference begins to dawn on the student. You can, you can actually see where the thought's coming from. And the ego is a murderer. And its thoughts are thoughts of murder and killing, killing joy, killing health, killing happiness, and so forth. So the state at which we are at the moment, according to A Course in Miracles, is that everyone in this world has an ego. They have an imaginary identity because they choose to do so. This is seen as a body. You are not a body, you are free, says A Course in Miracles. And so we project onto others, other people's bodies, the guilt that we feel, and we become angry at what they say back to us because we have told them to say that. Your brother does not speak of Christ in you, says A Course in Miracles, because you did not speak of Christ in him. There doesn't appear to be any evidence of that. We really do think that these little outrages that we suffer during the day uh, are completely uncalled for. We did nothing to deserve that. We played no part in that. So we simply begin with an intellectual understanding. That's the best that we can do in the beginning. We understand that anything that we see in another person that we find objectionable is a projection of our own self-criticism. Now that mistake corrected, A Course in Miracles says we will immediately make a second mistake, which is seeing that everything in our experience is our responsibility. We will feel guilty Ego will turn it to guilt. It turns everything to guilt. So I got sick. I got the flu. So now I'm, I'm not only sick, I've got to feel guilty about it. It's my responsibility. Or uh, uh, there's, this, uh, there's this relative in my household who's a drunk. I intellectually understand I'm responsible for that. That my friend is having this operation. I understand intellectually that I'm responsible for that, that my friend cannot be sick without my consent, says A Course in Miracles. No one can be sick in your presence without your consent. So intellectually we just see that. And then we feel guilty. So, oh, I'm responsible. Meaning, in ego terms, I'm guilty. Because the ego always equates responsibility with guilt. If you're responsible, then you're guilty because the ego says there's something wrong with everything. So whatever you're responsible for, you're guilty because there's something wrong with it.
that mistake corrected, seeing that guilt is of no use to us, that our way home lies in letting go of guilt, freeing our mind from guilt, seeing that, that guilt is simply an exercise in gross arrogance. Because what we are saying is we have changed creation. We have literally restructured the cosmos. Our guilt has done this. Because we are out of place. We're, we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. And we're running loose. And so we're interfering in everyone else's lives. So they may, it's quite possible that, that they're going along just doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. But we're there. And we're not supposed to be there. Because we're guilty, and we're and we're and uh, we should we should never have moved to Santa Fe in the first place, or we should never have gone shopping. We didn't need to go shopping. We say to ourselves, we walk in one store after the other. Why am I doing this? And so we run into so and so. Now we weren't supposed to be there. Remember, we should have been home meditating. And here we've run into this dear, innocent, sweet soul and guilty us messes up their life because they were supposed to continue walking down the aisle, you see, and get the big bottle of ketchup that was on sale and there we are. And this whole process was stopped right there. Now they've got to talk to us. So they didn't turn the corner and meet this other dear sweet soul that they would have met and exchanged a sweet smile and a word and so because they're talking to us. And so now this other person who's coming around the corner, their life is messed up. <laughs> and in about 26 minutes, the whole world is changed. <laughs> See the arrogance of just one assumption that I can be in the wrong place at the wrong time. That I am guilty. Everything has changed if that's true. If ever there was any goodness, if one person truly made a mistake, it's all over. <laughs> so guilt is arrogance. It's interference. It's static. It's a withholding of a blessing. That's all we do when we feel guilty. We think that we've attacked someone. We think we've hurt someone. Now we're thinking about that. We are affirming the damage that we've done to this person. With our mind, we're going over and over. Affirming God's laws? No. Our arrogant laws. How how we have damaged this person. When we could have spent the same time blessing them. Guilt is just the withholding of a blessing. Guilt is simply the same mistake in another form. The original mistake was that we thought there was some value in an attack. That's why we interpreted what we did as an attack. We thought there was some value in it. Now we're attacking in another form. We've simply, we've, simply we've simply switched the object of the attack. So we did this thing to so-and-so, or we thought this thought about so-and-so, which was an attack thought. 
tremendous amount of guilt flows from attack thoughts. As a matter of fact, A Course in Miracles says you can release yourself from this world simply by giving up attack thoughts. You'd need to do nothing more than that. If you were to do that one thing, you would be free of this world. So we have these attack thoughts as we go through the day. That's valuing attack. Thinking it will do something. We attack our child to try to get our child to be quiet so we can have a little peace and quiet, you see. We try to attack our spouse so that our spouse will will get back into the role that our spouse is supposed to. Notice how much guilt there is in relationships. If you want to get your spouse to behave, make him feel guilty. <laughs> so that's that's the deny, then dynamics of uh, of these relationships. So guilt is simply the same mistake in another form. We simply change the object of the attack. That's all the ego does. It's a shell game. So we've attacked this person, mentally or otherwise. Now the ego says, attack yourself. Attack yourself and become a better person. <laughs> this is real humility. Just dump all over yourself. <laughs> So what is salvation? Salvation is simply realizing that everything that we think is wrong with this world is a projection. That's our personal hell. What we personally think is wrong with the people in our lives. With uh, the UN <coughs> with the jet streams. Whatever it may be, whatever our personal hell is, A Course in Miracles says, you have simply projected outward your own feelings so that you can dissociate from them and thereby hope to get a little relief. Does it work? Does it work when the child projects his anger onto his imaginary playmate? No. His imaginary playmate, it simply comes from that direction. That's all. The thing is, though, that the child has rendered himself helpless because he thinks it's coming from his, uh, his playmate who's sitting over here on the chair talking to him. And so he's now helpless because he can't do anything about it. But he hasn't actually gotten rid of the anger. He's just shifted it over here. So A Course in Miracles recommends a very simple procedure that we own all of our projections. We acknowledge them as ours. That's step one. Step two is that we see that this is a mistake, that there is no guilt, And that we let it go. We release it. So we simply say, what this person is doing that I think is so bad is a version 
of what I am doing or I want to do. Now, don't, don't be fooled by the fact that it takes a different form. The guts of it, the thing that irritates us about it, is exactly our own judgment. Who's, who, what other judgment could it be? Why does it irritate it? Tell us that this person does this. Because it's our judgment. It's going against our judgment. So it's only our judgment that needs to be released. And so everyone in our experience becomes our savior. They are they're little mirrors of what we are doing to ourselves. So our enemies are our friends. They've actually come to save us. Anytime that anyone does anything that irritates us, it immediately shows us the mistake we're making. If we don't get angry. If we don't get angry. Because if we get angry, now we project it out, we say, it's not me, uh, this is justified, my anger is justified, because so-and-so did, I didn't ask for this, and now we're helpless. As helpless as the child with the imaginary playmate. But if we don't do that, if we start just intellectually, and we say, if there's anything I don't like about that tree, or about uh, this sidewalk, or about anything, if I notice that I don't like it, that indicates my mistake, not the tree's mistake. The weather doesn't have a mood. People talk about the mood of the weather. It doesn't have a mood. It's our mood that we're seeing in the weather. I remember when I uh, was a counseling, I was a guidance counselor in uh, a school near Traverse City. And um, I was the only... <coughs> I was the only person there from Texas. And uh, I had forgotten my Tex Texanese, you know. But I became real Texas out there because that's what they wanted. And the kids, the kids talked about how magnificent it must be to look for miles and miles and miles and just be able to see nothing but land everywhere, just flat land, everywhere. God, I'd never looked at it that way. <laughs> and I was in Hawaii recently. Hawaii, uh, temperatures between 74 and 76, almost all the time, day and night, year round. So consistent that a lot of the buildings are, are open, and, and, and it's not uncommon in the hotel rooms to have little birds running around on your floor and in restaurants, you know, under your feet. Because they don't, there's, as long as they're, you know, it's, it's protected by uh, the rains, there is no cold to keep out. Do you know what the young people there that we ran across were doing? They were studying about the cold country. But... <laughs> uh, about Michigan and uh, and about Canada uh, and Wyoming and so forth. It's all a projection. Both our heaven and our hell in this earth 
is a projection. So we own it and we forgive it, which means to let go. And then we can see the new world. So let's turn to our principles of miracles. I forgot to ask everyone if they had the principles. But those of you who are here for the first time, we're going through the 50 principles of miracles. And today we're doing 20 through uh, 29. <clears throat> Number 20 says, Miracles reawaken the awareness that the spirit, not the body, is the altar of truth. This is the recognition that leads to the healing power of the miracle. So there are two altars that we can worship before. One of them is the body. It doesn't matter whether we're attacking bodies or we're uh, putting them on pedestals. We're still worshiping it. It's still the focus of our attention. It doesn't matter whether it's the form of the body or the behavior of the body. If our thought is engulfed in bodies in any form, that is where our altar is. And where our altar is, is where our projection screen, excuse me, where our projector lies. So what we put in our projector is what we set upon our altar. The first girl in our age group to get breasts was Sally C. And every young man was in love with Sally C. And do you remember being in love? Do you remember how you could... Uh, you could be at a party and you'd be talking to this person. Over here would be Sally C. And you could hear every word she was saying. And if you were sitting in a movie and you were looking up at the screen, <clears throat> your eyes may be looking at the screen, but every time Sally C.'s delicate little hand reached into her popcorn box, Put a piece of popcorn on her. You knew it. You knew how many times she chewed. And if something funny happened on the screen, the burning question was, when Sally C. laughs, does she turn and look at me? Of course, you just kept looking at the screen. Our altar is our focus. What we focus on. Being in love has shown us there is, there's no uh, lack in our ability to focus. You know the song that we see, uh, uh, the, the song that we sing, uh, 
I woke up this morning with my mind stayed on Jesus. People say, well, I can't do that. Well, if we can do it regarding Sally C., <laughs> we can do it regarding anything. Miracles are natural signs of forgiveness. Through miracles, you accept God's forgiveness by extending it to others. So by letting loose of what we have projected on others, we let loose of it ourselves. Because at this point, we will not look honestly and fully at our well of guilt. We're not going to do that. We're too scared of what we may find there if we look inside ourselves. And so, the very simple procedure whereby we are saved, whereby we awaken, whereby we go home, is we forgive in others the faults that we have projected onto them. That becomes the very simple way in which it's done. Miracles are associated with fear only because of the belief that darkness can hide. You believe that what your physical eyes cannot see does not exist. This leads to a denial of spiritual sight. So what we think is within us is nothing but darkness. Because that's what we see all around us, varying forms of fear. And so we believe that there must be nothing but fear within us. And since our physical eyes cannot see the presence of God, surely it couldn't be inside of us. How unlikely when there's all that sin in there. <laughs> But you know what? Whenever we're still, and whenever we look inside of us just a little bit, yes, we do first see this huge granite block of sin and guilt and fear and murder. We see how many times we have wanted to murder our loved ones because they coughed at the wrong time. Yes, we do see that. But if we hold our gaze steady, something else is there. A beautiful, beautiful light. That's what meditation is. We first see the granite block of guilt. But as we look at it, it dissolves and we see this lovely light inside of us. Miracles rearrange perception and place all levels in true perspective. This is healing because sickness comes from confusing the levels. Confusing the levels is unforgiveness. Confusing the levels is judgment. So the way it appears that everything operates is that there's this external world and we're a victim of it. That's the way it appears. That we were just sort of plopped uh, into this uh, nest of snakes. You know, we, we just came tumbling out of this, this teeny little place 
and we're pitched out on this very dangerous spinning ball, and uh, for a long time it just looks as if uh, everything sort of uh, attacks us. Now the ego steps in and says, yes, indeed, this is a fearful state. You are the victim, and the world is the murderer. I've got the solution for you. You become the murderer and the world the victim. And that's the only solution that our, that our ego offers us. We become the manipulator. We start uh, misusing other people. Maybe subtly, maybe openly. It doesn't matter. Miracles enable you to heal the sick and raise the dead because you made sickness and death yourself and can therefore abolish both. You are a miracle capable of creating in the likeness of your creator. Everything else is your own nightmare and does not exist. Only the creations of light are real. So it's as if the Holy Spirit constitutes everything around us. At times it's easy to see why people believed in pantheism. Because it's as if the curtains and the and and uh, and the chairs and the and the screens and everything around us, it's as if those things were actually were the Holy Spirit taking that form. Because when our vision passes beyond the guilt that we've projected, it turns, it seems to turn into something else. It turns into splendor. I remember Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talking about uh, her first dark night of the soul. And she went through all this stuff one night. And the next morning, as she walked from her guest house to the main house, the pebbles were alive under her feet. Everything was was pure beauty. But but she was taken up with just the pebbles of this walk that she was walking on. They were living, beautiful creations of God. She could not harm them. She could not harm them. And literally walked above them. At least that was her perception of the experience. <coughs> doesn't matter whether she did or didn't. She saw something that she had not seen before. Miracles are part of an interlocking chain of forgiveness which, when completed, is the atonement. Atonement works all the time and in all the dimensions of time. Miracles represent freedom from fear. Atoning means undoing. The undoing of fear is an essential part of the atonement value of miracles. Now here in number 27 is the first time that the standpoint of the Course in Miracles comes in. A miracle is a universal blessing from God through me to all my brothers it is the privilege of the forgiven to forgive. You see how, how gently that's put in there? 
Helen was had felt so much fear about the standpoint of A Course in Miracles that even the words Christ and Holy Spirit were not used in the beginning. They, they, those were added later. There was a term called the spiritual eye for Holy Spirit. And the word Christ just was, was just not used at all. She was so frightened about this material that when she would try to read back her notes in the beginning, she couldn't even see them. And she would begin coughing so heavily that she couldn't say anything. And there was a period there for about the first four chapters where Bill Thetford had to actually keep his arm around Helen so that she could see her notes and read from them. And he would type up the manuscript with his other hand. Later, when she began to feel less fearful about this. You see, she was a very upstanding person at Columbia University. She was a, a very well-respected research psychologist. She was known uh, as an atheist. And suddenly she was doing this thing that in her mind made her very suspect in her field. You know, she was channeling this stuff. Little old Jewish woman in New York hears voice of Jesus. You know. <laughs> so do you see how gentle this is? The very first mention here, a miracle is a universal blessing from God through me to all my brothers. It is the privilege of the forgiven to forgive. Controversy is of no use to us. So some of the rules that A Course in Miracles gives us so that we will not project are do not allow the body to reflect your decision to attack. It knows that we'll make the decision to attack. We want to reverse the tables. We want to become the murderer and other people the victim. We know that the ego will offer us that gift and we know that we will fall for it. We're going to. But we can stop that crazy process and walk away from that form of enslavement by following this simple rule. Do not allow the body to reflect your decision to attack. It's interesting how many of the, uh, of the great mystics and the great masters and so forth have said that the highest position we can obtain on this earth are these, what we think are very lowly service positions. It says, if you want to see an ascended master, who will probably be a beggar who will knock on your door. It will probably be some drunk sitting on the, on the side of the, uh, the street asking you to help. Father Salazar talks about uh, a drunk that came to his door uh, one evening. He's the priest over at St. John's. And he was very busy. He had something that he had to do. And, and the man asked for food. And he said, I'm sorry, I just, I just can't, I can't do that now. You have to come back later. Close the door. Then he heard this voice. You have just passed me by. So a few other rules are 
in addition to do not question your brother, do not thwart him. Do not demonstrate the falsity of his position. Do not attack his position. Merely protect the truth. Do not argue with him. So those all amount to the same thing. Don't argue with your brother. Don't question him. Don't thwart him. Don't attack his position. Don't point out the falsity of his position. A miracle is a universal blessing from God through me to all my brothers. It is the privilege of the forgiven to forgive. So when we when we simply cease that, then out comes the, the miracle. Miracles are a way of earning release from fear. Revelation induces a state in which fear has already been abolished. Miracles are thus a means, and revelation is an end. Now here the word revelation is being used differently than it's usually used. This is the way, of course, miracles use it, uses it. It's used as the last state, the last state of mind. Whereas a miracle is a means of reaching it. So when we reach the state of revelation, then at that point the world will end. Miracles simply take us to that. And miracles, of course, are expressions of love. Miracles praise God through you. They praise him by honoring his creations, affirming their perfection. They heal because they deny body identification and affirm spirit identification. When I was a boy, I was a Christian scientist. And there was a, a practitioner that lived in a, in a hotel called the Melrose Hotel in Dallas, Texas. A little woman by the name of Fulton. Everybody referred to her as Mrs. Fulton. And she had a little room where she prayed. And when I was uh, 14, 15, 16, so forth, in that age, you know how, how big your problems are, how burning your philosophical questions are. And I would go see Mrs. Fulton. Now one thing I learned is if I had a physical problem, I better not go to Mrs. Fulton if I didn't want it healed. <laughs> it's very interesting if you know someone is going to heal you. You can immediately feel this resistance. We think we want our physical problems healed. But if you know they're going to be healed, you will actually feel the resistance to having this done. Well, I would go in there with whatever problem I had or, or whatever question that I was going around in my mind. And Mrs. Fulton always did the same thing. She would take me to this little room, a little study room. I don't know how old she was. She was probably about 70 years old. <clears throat> and I would sit in a chair and she'd sit in a chair. And she would close her eyes. And I would get embarrassed because I didn't know if I was supposed to close my eyes. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. You know, she was just there. She'd just close her eyes. And 
I'd close my eyes and then I'd look up. And then she would recite a poem. I believe it's by Mazzetti. And this is the only thing that she would say in all the times that I went to her. This is the only thing that, the only words. I am one with thee, O thou infinite one. I am where thou art. I am what thou art. I am because thou art. She'd just say that. She'd be silent. Maybe she'd say it again. And she'd open her eyes. And the question would be answered. And the problem would be gone. And to me, that's what number 29 is saying. Miracles praise God through you.